0: Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you that you love us, that you have not left us alone, but you have revealed yourself to us. You speak, and we ask, God, that you would enable us to listen to you today and be changed as we look at your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you find yourself with your face down, kind of like holding the plow, working, 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 working. And sometimes you just got to stop from the work and look up and kind of enjoy what's happened. Enjoy the work. And I kind of feel like that over the last eight months or so since I've been here. I just feel like my head's been down and I've been working, 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 working. And this week I stopped and I just looked up and kind of looked around, and I recognized the work that God has been doing among us over these last eight months, and I was really excited. I mean, God has been doing a lot of fantastic things around this place over the last several months. Uh, of course, there's been the renovations. We're sitting in a space that's been renovated. I think the, the, the beauties of this facility just shine right now, don't you think? Just looks great. Yes. And... Um, we renovated, of course, the floors over at Old North Church. Uh, the offices are now in the hospitality house, which has been newly renovated. Uh, we renovated North Hermosa House and South Hermosa House. And then coupled with that, we welcomed a bunch of new staff members onto our team. And so we have Justin and Athelie Sapp. We've got Robert Cavola. We've got Ryan and Natalie Wiley. Uh, we've still got some older players on our team who are awesome, uh, like Stephanie Stonick and John Stuthers and a few others. Uh, Alvar Nelson, I'm thinking of Alvar right over there. And uh, we just got this rock-solid team, and I'm really excited about the team that God has built around us. But in addition to the renovations and the team building, there's been a lot of great stuff that has been happening within the life of our community. And so, uh, for example, we launched a new website last week with new signage and new bulletins and all kinds of new design, which we're really excited about. Uh, we, we launched just this month 10 new community groups which that's really impressive, and and it's very, very cool. Many of you are leading community groups. You're participating in these groups, and these are groups where we share meals together and stories and our life together, and so these launched this last week, 10 of them. Um, We have seen 23 baptisms in the last eight months, and so there's um, a gentleman named Mike, awesome guy, led our pew moving day yesterday, and That's a guy who, like many of the other folks that were baptized, God has got a hold of his life and he's doing great. I see Mike back there. Give a shout out to Mike. He loves to be pointed out, I'm sure. Um. We built a couple of houses in Mexico over the last eight months, which is cool, uh, With among the poorest of the poor in Tijuana area. And so God has done some really, really exciting, great work. Uh, we, we did a, um, uh, a walk, many of us, a couple months ago to raise awareness and money for the homeless problem in conjunction with Union Rescue Mission uh, this last summer. And then we launched a new internship program, and we have actually signed on our first intern, whose name is Josh Kenyatta. We'll bring him up in the next couple weeks, but the internship is posted at Fuller and Providence and Azusa, and we're already receiving some interest, and so we're really excited about what God is doing around here. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening, and it is just so fantastic. And while I'm thankful for our incredible staff team, and I recognize that none of this could have been done without this great, team of people that I have working alongside of me, Uh, more than that, this could not have been done without so many of you all. You know, this is now my third church, or now my Fourth church I've served on staff with. And I have to say that every church I've been at, churches, kind of the lifeblood of a church is its volunteers. It's the people that invest their time, their effort, their money, their resources, uh, their gifts into the local church. And every church I've been at has had fantastic volunteers, but I have never seen such a remarkable team of volunteers as I've seen at this church. You people are incredible. And even in the last couple months, just to see this facility come to the place where it's at right now, yes, it took, you know, many of you investing financially, about $100,000 have been invested from so many of you into this space. But beyond that, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of man hours have been put in by people like Walter and Tammy Tripuco. Arnold Gaffrey and Al Bailey and Ron and Kay Smith and Janet and Dwight Crum and Marina and Dario Perosco and Chris and Kim Thomas and Dave Harris and Alicia Swanson and Mark Daw and Scott Garland and Alvar and Stacey and Mark Nelson and 25 plus men who came, and women who came out yesterday to help move pews across the street, all to kind of like begin us in this new chapter. And so I just want to say on behalf of this congregation, thank you to so many of you who have volunteered. It's just been fantastic. But, you know, as I was thinking this week, I I think what's really cool is this is really just the preface for a whole bunch of chapters that God intends to write in and through the life of this church. You know, this church has an incredible history of church planning and of uh, investment in in cross-cultural missions, and this church has seen many young people and older people meet Jesus and have their lives transformed. This church has invested in a generation of leaders and sent people out. This church has an incredible history of great gospel work. But we don't want this simply to be the story that we tell about our past. We also want this to be the story that we tell about our future. You know, C.S. Lewis once quipped, he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. You know, there is so much more that God wants to do in and through the life of this church. Do you believe that? You know, we serve a God who is able to do abundantly above and beyond all that we could ask or think. And so I don't want to be too easily pleased by what we've seen. I want to see more happen in in the life of this community. I want our gatherings, when we come together on Sunday mornings, not to simply be a religious game where we sing some songs and hear a self-help talk. But I want it to be an encounter with the true and living God, where in the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray in our confession and our assurance and in the preaching of God's word, we actually have an encounter with the divine and we meet God. And when people who are outside of the church come into this place, they say, God is truly among you. We want to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in these gatherings each week. We want to see God do a great work among our children in the classrooms that are meeting right now and our students across the street. We want to see these students learn to find their identity not in the opinion of their peers, but in the love of God. And I want, after we meet on Sunday mornings and we go out into the week, I want us to be a community that shares life together. In our homes, we eat meals together and we trust each other and we share stories together and we encourage each other to practice the radical and the countercultural and the life-giving way of Jesus. And I want us to be a community that goes out into this world and bears strong and powerful witness to Jesus in our deeds, in our actions of justice and mercy. I want justice to roll down like a mighty ocean and righteousness to pour forth like a stream. I want to see the Spirit of God poured out on our church and move out among us in Sierra Madre and Monrovia and Arcadia and Altadena and Pasadena and Temple City and all of the surrounding communities. I don't want to be too easily pleased, do you? So we have a great future ahead of us because we serve a great God who is able to do abundantly above and beyond all that we can ask or think. But here's the thing. When God chooses to work in the world, He chooses to work through us. There was an old cliche I remember hearing years ago, and I I think it's true, And it was that, you know, without Him, we can't, but without us, He won't. God has actually called the body of Christ, His people, into relationship with Himself so that we might be His agents of His love and His justice out into this world. And so the question is, is, do we want to get in the game? And what do we expect if we do? So there was a lot of work ahead for us. There was a lot of building for us left to do in the chapters ahead together. But before we move into these chapters ahead together, I just want us to pause this morning and as kind of a framing verse for our time ahead, I want us to look together at the words of Psalm 127. Over the last few months, this is a verse that has come to mind in my own heart often, And this text gives us a very sobering reminder, and it's this, Psalm 127, verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Don't you love that last phrase? He gives to his beloved sleep. Anybody want a little sleep this morning? I could use a little sleep. (laughs) We've been doing a lot of work around here. But it says he gives to his beloved sleep. I'll stop there. You know, there's a great paradox at the very heart of this psalm. I think for a lot of us, when we read the Psalm, maybe our first read would lead us to think that he's pitting two ways against each other. One way that involves toil and work and building, and then another way that involves rest and peace and kind of relaxation. But he's actually not contrasting in this text, work with rest. He's actually contrasting in this text two kinds of work, two kinds of toil, two kinds of building. You see, I want you to look at the very top of the psalm. Notice what it says. There's a title given. It says, a psalm of a sense of who? Okay, that was really weak. We're going to we're gonna have to do that better than that, people. It's a psalm of who? Solomon. 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 Now, who was Solomon. Solomon was the son of David, who was Israel's greatest king. And under Solomon, Israel really reached its zenith, its climax. Underneath Solomon, he expanded the boundaries of his father David, and he's well known in lore, in history, in the Bible, as a man of great wisdom. But in addition to being a wise man, Solomon was known for something else. Solomon was known as a builder as somebody who worked heartily and vigorously and who toiled and he built. And it's this guy who's writing these words, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. But it's interesting when you go back to the story surrounding Solomon's, how often the authors mention his penchant for building. And so, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 10, it says, at the end of, a, of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, First Kings 9:24. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. And then he built the Milo. Now I don't know what the Milo was, but Solomon built it, apparently. 1 Kings Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt sacrifices and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord. And then there's one other passage that I intended to put in there. It got left out. But it talks about Solomon building an entire fleet of ships. So there's Solomon the wise man, but there's also Solomon the builder, the one who built his house, the one who built the temple, the one who built Pharaoh's daughter's house, the one who built Milo, whatever that is, the one who built all the fleets, and the one who built the altar of the Lord. And it's this man who engages in all of this work and all of this toil and all of this building that says, unless the Lord builds the house, we who labor, labor in vain. Isn't that interesting? And he contrasts building... Anxious building, toil, anxious toil, with sleep. And I think what he's doing is, I don't think he's contrasting work and toil and building with rest. I think what he's doing in the psalm is he's actually contrasting for us two different kinds of work. You see, there is anxious work, what he describes as someone who eats the bread of anxious toil, but then there's restful work. Or we could contrast it like this there is work that is done in reliance upon God, and it's done for the glory of God. And then there is work that is done in the reliance upon self, and it's done for the glory of self. And he's contrasting these kind of two works, and he's saying one kind of work is utterly vain and it leads to nothing, it's less than worthless if what a church is working for it's what volunteers and staff members and pastors are working for is out of their own strength in dependence in a spirit of independence from God and for their own glory and fame and name he says that kind of worth work is worthless but not all work is worthless you know you were created to work Back in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. Why? It was to work the ground. You know, before the fall into sin, there was work. Some of you thought that back in the beginning, you know, it was just a, a long-term vacation, like a, a, a cruise where you don't do nothing, Right? But in the beginning, Adam and Eve were given work. They were given a job to do because part of what it means to be human is to have a vocation. It's to have a calling. It's to work. It's to toil. J.R.R. Tolkien once referred to human beings as sub-creators. He said that God is the great creator, but then he called us into being to go into the world and to be sub-creators, to take the raw materials in the world around us and to draw out their potential and to do something useful with it. And that's why when we're doing that kind of work, it feels so fulfilling because we were made for work. When you get to the New Testament, Paul comes to the church and he says, hey, I want you to work heartily as unto the Lord. And then when Paul reflects back on his own ministry, you know what he says? He said, I worked harder than everyone else. But then he said, it wasn't I, it was the grace of God that was in me. But do you see, this text is not a psalm that's getting down on work. It's not one of these psalms that's saying, let go and let God stop trying and start trusting. It is actually a psalm that is encouraging us to a particular kind of work and building. And it's a work, it's a toil, and it's a building that's done in dependence upon God with a strong recognition of those words of Jesus that without me, you can do nothing. And may that be a word that sinks deep into our life as a church. That apart from Christ, it doesn't matter how much wealth we have or property we have or Bible knowledge we have or ministry experience we have, apart from the Spirit of God, apart from Christ himself, you and I can do nothing. This is the kind of work that we're exhorted into in the years, in the months ahead. It is work, it is toil that is done in deep dependence upon Jesus. But it's work nonetheless. You know, Dallas Willard once said, he said, grace is not opposed to effort, grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, grace is opposed to earning. And that's why Paul himself said, I worked harder than everyone else. I, I worked hard, I put forth a lot of effort, but it was not I, it was the grace of God that was in me. You see, his effort was infused, and it was fueled by the grace of God. You know, sometimes people can juxtapose planning and strategizing and being creative in church life and church ministry with just trusting in God, and they can say, "Why are you work- Why are you doing so hard, working so hard and doing all that planning and strategizing? You just need God." And listen. It's true that God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. Right now, God can turn me into a helicopter and fly me out the door. God can do whatever God wants to do. But it's not likely that God's going to do that. Because God typically chooses to work through means. And one of the means that God uses to accomplish His mission in the world is through a church church through a community of people that are working hard, that are self-sacrificing, that are investing, that are strategizing and being creative and, in, you know, with ingenuity and creativity. And they're moving forward the work of God in the power and independence upon the Spirit of God. And that is what we are called to. And notice it's contrasted with this other kind of work. And notice the phrase again, eating the bread of anxious toil. Isn't that an arresting phrase, an arresting way of describing it? He talks about eating bread. And what is bread? Bread is the fruit of hard labor. Back in the ancient world, you didn't just go down to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods and pick up a loaf of Dave's bread. You, you actually had to plow your field and you had to care for those plants and raise them up and harvest them and then grind them and then, you know, knead them and then bake them. And then you had bread to eat that night. And then the next day you had to do it all over again. Bread required tremendous amount of labor. And this, this psalm is a, it's, it's it's talking about somebody who is working hard and they're laboring and they're doing labor and they have fruit from their labor. They have bread. And yet, it is the bread, he says, of anxious toil. Anyone in the house ever know anything about work that caused you great stress and anxiety? Anyone ever gone to bed at night worrying and anxious and stressed out about what's gonna happen tomorrow? Anyone here ever been irritable because you were so stressed out and anxious at, about work, and so your family members just found it really difficult to be around you because you were so anxious and stressed. Any spouses here ever married to somebody who was that the way? Would you just raise your hand, we can pray for you? There's a kind of work that creates deep anxiety and stress. And sometimes it's because work east of Eden, outside of the garden, is full of toil and hardship and suffering and pain. And life is just hard sometimes. But sometimes we're eating the bread of anxious toil because, not simply because we live in a fallen world, but because of the idols in our own hearts. Because we've put something in a higher degree of importance in our heart and life, and we're building our identity and our self-worth on that instead of God. Madonna, who is well known within the music industry for her incredibly hard work ethic, she once said this in an interview, she said, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's what's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. What is that? She's eating the bread of anxious toil. There's this powerful scene in the movie Chariots of Fire where one of the main characters, Harold Abrams, who just lives for running. His entire life identity is built on running. And in expressing how important this is to him, he said this. He said, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? What is that? He's eating the bread of anxious toil. There's this great scene in the movie Rocky. Where um, it's the night before Rocky is going to fight the great fodder, Apollo Creed, and he's lying in bed with his wife Adrian, and Adrian's like, "Barack, Barack, why you got to do it? Why you got to do it? You know?" And and he said, "I got to go the distance. I got to go the distance. You know, I just got to go the distance with, with with Creed. You know." And she's like, "Why you got to do it?" And he said this. He said, "If I can go the distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see." that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. What is that? He's eating the bread of anxious toil. And when we work to prove that we're somebody or we work to justify our existence or to know that we're not a bum or out of some deep father wound of a parent who never quite accepted us, our work will be full of anxiety and stress. And the alternative in this text is a work that comes out of a place of rest and trust. Rest and trust in what? That you are somebody, that you're not a nobody, that God has actually set his love and affection on you, and it is so deep and so strong that this love will carry you all the way on into eternity. And when you rest in that love and you realize it doesn't really matter so much if the church is successful or the business is successful or my family turns out and everyone is perfectly impressive, my identity is built on something stronger and truer and more secure than all of that. It is built on the love of God in Jesus Christ. So the author says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Those who engage in this anxious toil and stress, it's in vain. So I was reading this text this week. The word that really caught my attention was this word, unless. Notice he says, unless the Lord builds the house. He puts a condition on it. He says, if God builds it, then it's not in vain. What's interesting to me is when you turn to the New Testament, God once again speaks to his people about building, only this time there is no unless. Instead of having an unless, you just have a straightforward, unquenchable promise from the lips of Jesus, and it's this. Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, hey, who, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some one of the prophets, some say John the Baptist. He says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter looks at him, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yes. You're Simon, and we're going to call you Little Stone from now on. But on this rock, on this rock, the confession about the event of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection that God incarnate has come among us. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. There's no unless about it. Jesus says Jesus is going to build his church. And then he says the gates of hell will never overcome his church. Nothing will conquer the power of Jesus to build his church. When you give your life, when you invest in the church, the mission of God, when you you invest finances and time and gifts and talents in building up the, the people of God to engage in the mission of God, you are participating in something that is strong and sure and will go all the way into eternity. And the gates of hell will never overcome the church. Why? Because who is building the church? Who made this promise? John Piper put it like this. He said, take one scene as the answer. We're in heaven beholding the throne of God. And in his hand is a scroll, the unfolding of the end of history and the destiny of the church of Christ. And at first, nobody is seen worthy to open the scroll. That is to bring history to its appointed consummation. And John weeps because no one is found. And then one of the 24 elders says, weep no more because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and is worthy to open the scroll. And then the lion-like lamb and the lamb-like lion takes the scroll and the elders and the creatures around the throne all sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. One person is worthy to bring history to its appointed consummation. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who has ransomed a people from every ethnic group on the planet. And then, two astonishing things happen in this scene. Millions of angels and talking birds and horses and fish confirm the greatness of Christ. It says, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's at least two million saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, birds and butterflies, and on earth, horses and tigers and squirrels, and under the earth, worms and moles and groundhogs, and in the sea, fish and squid and lobsters, and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and all the elders fell down and worshiped. And God's church says amen. amen. This is the one who said, I will build my church. Friends, as we move out in to this new season together. As we start to write new chapters in the history of this church, we don't do it alone. And we don't do it as a result of our own ingenuity and our own ideas because Jesus is building his church and we are participating with him. You know, I, I do, um, back in Albuquerque, I did uh, um, the master swim team at the UNM at University of New Mexico, and I remember our coach, Coach Bobby, he was awesome, but he used to always tell us, you know, uh, he would say things like, you know, the workout doesn't begin until you feel like giving up. And then he would always tell us, man, leave it all in the water. Leave it all in the water. And may we, as we move forward and we write these new chapters, may we give everything we got, may we leave it all in the water. And may we serve together to see the mission of God go forward in new ways in Sierra Madre and in our surrounding communities.